Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is producer-engineer Warren Ewart. First of all, there was an interesting article in Medium.com, and it was about how Spotify is killing song titles. What they did was they took the last 18 years and they divided it into pre-Spotify, that's the years 2000 to 2008, and Spotify era, 2009 to 2018. And they really found a lot of things out as a result. For one thing, there were more songs in the Billboard Hot 100 in the Spotify era and this is about 27% more. What that means is there's actually more songs that are rotating through the Billboard Hot 100 than there ever has been. That means that when you actually have a song that hits the Hot 100, it doesn't stay there as long. And the other thing they found that's basically saying the same thing is that in the pre-Spotify era, songs that only reached the Hot 100 for one week are pretty rare, but now they're very, very common in the Spotify era. Now, the tease that I said was Spotify was killing song titles, and in fact, that's really true. What they found out were song titles were less meaningful in the Spotify era, and they looked at the number of unique words that were in each song title. And what they found was in the pre-Spotify era, there were 2,113 unique words, and there were 2,512 in the Spotify era, which is 19% more. And then they found that most titles in the Spotify era are only comprised of one or two words or more than seven. And this is quite the opposite of the pre-Spotify era where most songs were three to seven words long. So now we're finding that we're getting a lot more one and two word song titles. Pretty interesting, huh? Also, there's a big change in the Spotify era where we went from country to pop to urban. And there's no correlation to why this is, but what they found was that country music in the 2000 to 2008 era was a lot more prevalent. And like I say, there's no exact correlation that the Spotify era did something to change that, but it is kind of interesting, and I think it deserves a little bit more research to figure out exactly what happened there. Anyway, kind of interesting how it looks like Spotify has influenced a lot about music and one of the big things is song titles. If you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyowenandcircle.com. Check out my Hitmakers Club for access to the Private Mixers Facebook group, monthly deconstructed hits, mixing workshop, and Q&A webinars. For a short time, access to my core training module bonus. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, another interesting thing is that the National Recording Registry just added 25 titles. What is the National Recording Registry? Well, Congress passed the National Recording Preservation Act of 2000. And what they did is they tasked a librarian for this with annually selecting 25 titles that are culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. The only thing is they have to be at least 10 years old. So the nominations come from not only a board of directors, but also from leaders in the fields of music and recorded sound and preservation. 
So the 25 this year that they selected were pretty interesting. And let me just read some of them to you. Sitting on Top of the World by Mississippi Sheiks, and this is from 1930. The Complete Beethoven Piano Sonatas from Arthur Schnabel, 1932 to 1935. The Ink Spots, I Didn't Care, single from 1939. This one I found really interesting. The Proceedings of the United Nations Conference on International Organization. In other words, this is the birth of the United Nations, and this came in 1945. Folk Songs Over the Hill, which is an album from Merle Travis in 1946. How I Got Over from Clara Ward and Award Singers, 1950. Here's one that you'll all recognize. Rock Around the Clock, the single from Bill Haley and his comments, 1954, which many think is the birth of rock and roll. Calypso from Harry Belafonte, 1956. I Left My Heart in San Francisco by Tony Bennett, 1962. Boy, it's an iconic song, and that'll always live on. King Biscuit Time from Sonny Boy Williamson, and this was a radio show from 1965. My Girl, the single from The Temptations in 1964. The Sound of Music soundtrack, 1965. Alice's Restaurant from Arlo Guthrie, if you remember that, 1967. New Sounds and Electronic Music, an album from Steve Reich, Richard Maxfield, and Pauline Alvarez. An Evening with Groucho from Groucho Marx, 1972. Rumors from Fleetwood Mac, 1977. The Gambler, the single from Kenny Rogers, 1978. La Freak, the single from Chic, 1978. Footloose, Kenny Loggins, 1984. Just a single. Raising Hell, the album from Run DMC, 1986. Rhythm is Gonna Get You from Gloria Estefan and Miami Sound Machine. And Yo-Yo Ma premieres, and this was an album of 1976. It's pretty interesting, actually, but it's a really good thing that these recordings are being preserved and recognized as something special. And once again, it's the way that they've made an impact on our culture or our history, our musical history, and all of these recordings certainly did, and we look forward to next year to see what selected them. My guest this week is producer, engineer, musician, and composer Warren Ewart. Warren's had a lot of success since he moved to Los Angeles from his native England, working with The Fray, Daniel Powder, Korn, James Blunt, Ace Frehley, and Aerosmith, just to name a few. His works can also be found on film and television in Inglorious Bastards, Transformers, MTV's The Hills, Lost, Scrubs, and Grey's Anatomy. Warren also created an excellent Produce Like a Pro online community that features tons of great recording tips, tutorial videos, and much more. We spoke via phone from his home in Los Angeles. Let's go back to the beginning. You were just telling me a little bit about your background, but let's start and how you got into the business that we're in right now. Well, I grew up in a... It's interesting. I didn't grow up playing an instrument until late. I was actually one of the late last people of all of my friends that actually picked up a guitar. I didn't pick up a guitar until I was 15. Um, but strangely enough, um, I was surrounded by music because my father um, was a painter and a sculptor. And he just, he had loved classical music. He loved jazz. And I mean, when I say loved, I mean loved. He would come home nearly every night with a different classical album. And I just remember he would come back and he'd, He'd bought something, and he'd play Beethoven or Elgar or Mozart or Handel or Haydn. I mean, I just grew up with this stuff, and I, I remember, I remember being that sort of nerdy kid. Um, there's, there was this 
TV show in England called The Onedian Line, which was about tall ships. And the theme tune was uh, uh, Spartacus by Katachurin, a Russian composer. And we had a music lesson, and they played the music, and the music teacher um, said, does anybody know what this music is? So, of course, every hand in the room goes up, and she points to somebody randomly, and they say, it's the Onedian line. And of course, every hand in the, in the class goes down except for mine. And I'm, you know, I'm, bear in mind, I'm like nine or ten years old. Except for my, my hand up, and they're like, yes, Warren? And, he goes, I'm, and I'm like, oh, it's Spartacus by Katachurian. He's a Russian composer. And I think that pretty much sort of summed me up as a kid. I was like little nerdy nerdy kid on like classical music and jazz and uh, not to say other kids weren't into that kind of stuff but I definitely that was what I was exposed to um, and I believe that it's great for the year I mean classical music huge melodies the co you know just the arrangements in, in, in particular are just insanely good and um, so it was, it was a great upbringing and uh, but I didn't discover I discovered pop music, um, well, my dad decided, he bought, bought home a 60s compilation album, which was very strange for him. I don't know why he did it, but he did. He brought home the 60s compilation album. And the one song that I remember sticking in my mind as a little kid was um, Matthew and Son by Cat Stevens, which was a, an amazing song with a, with a horn section and everything. And So that was like, that was like the first pop song I heard. But then the first rock stuff was Queen. And my dad bought me a night of the opera. Mm. And I was still a little tiny kid. And he just, he was like, he basically, not to sound pompous, but was basically like, this is, this, I think this is good enough. Like, he, he, for some reason, for him, it was like that Queen were a good enough band that it was okay for me to listen to. Yeah. Um, so, and it was a huge moment in my life from going from like not hearing any guitar music or anything, and then the first thing I listen to is is a night of the opera, and uh, that memory is like in it. I remember specifically sitting in front of my parents' stereo, unwrapping that album, putting it on, looking at the pictures, getting the getting the Sony headphones, those huge clunky Sony headphones, putting them on, and listening to that record incessantly for weeks. And just like, what is this music? And um, so, yeah, that stuck with me, and it, it, it will never leave me. And uh, it's interesting now when I, I tell people this, there's so many musician friends of mine that all go, oh, yeah, Queen, Queen was my band too. That's the reason why. I, <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think it was such a, a high level of musicality, songwriting and production all at once. Just everything hit on so many levels. And interestingly enough, I was on Spotify the other day, and Queen are the number one legacy artist on Spotify. No kidding. I had no idea. More plays per day than the Beatles or Michael Jackson or the Stones or Led Zeppelin. They just have so many big, huge songs, whether it be Don't Stop Me Now, We Will Rock You, We Are the Champions, Bohemian Rhapsody, Another One Bites the Dust, Crazy Little Thing Called Love. They're all like these massive songs. Like, just that anybody loves, regardless of genre. It's insane. You mentioned that you started playing later, and at 15, that is late as compared to a lot of kids. When did you get into your first band? Immediately. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I, was, because I was a late bloomer and there was lots of kids at my school that had already been playing, um, at least since 11, 12, or 13. You know, I was, 
at least two to four years behind everybody else. There was all these kids that already could play. There was a friend of mine, Steve, um, Steve Collings, who, um, who played drums. And he had a Maxwin drum kit, I remember, like this orange Maxwin drum kit. And I went over to his house and, um, you know, played my... I remember the first song I learned was um, a Hangman, um, Gallows Pole. Gallows Pole by um, Led Zeppelin because it's, it's A major, A minor, A major, A minor, G, D, A minor, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it, it, the A chord is like one of the first chords you, you learn. And, <laughs> and it was like the perfect song because I could just play those four chords over and over again. And uh, so I'd play that and off he, off he did and play drums. And of course, all the other sort of, you know, riff-based things like ACDC, um, you know, just straight ahead, simple rock tunes. And it's, it's still, an, I can still remember that, what an exhilarating feeling it is to like plug a guitar into an amp and play like three or four chords and have a drummer play along with you. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it is. Never gets old, does it? No. So when did you feel like you started to have your first taste of success as a player? Um, success. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a nebulous thing, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, for some people it's, wow, it's when I played my first gig and for other people it's when I played my first gig and, and got paid and you know, it, it, it's different for everybody. It's true. I think for me, for me it was, um, yeah, I, we definitely, the, the gigs I did at that level when I was a teenager, that sort of 15, 16, were in a friend of mine, um, there, was, there was a sort of wealthier kid that we were friends with and his parents had like a, we used to call it the hut. And basically it was just like a, a, a room that had ta- a ping pong table in it that was outside the house, you know, where you could go and play and everything. And we, we would set up, um, we'd set up drums and a, a small PA or whatever and, and jam there. I remember doing that. Um, so that was kind of a big level of like doing a gig, but but the reality for me was I I moved to the north of England when I was sixteen, seventeen years old, and I remember I applied to a college up there, um, and um, and I, I I didn't get in. It was an art college, and uh, I was and I, which was strange, you know, because at that point I wanted to be an artist. My father was an artist and everything, and um, but like all good like all good people that become successful, you know, we usually have to be told that we can't do it. Um, so, <laughs> so, so anyway, so I, um, I, I lived in this tiny little, um, bedsit and it was in, 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 on, on, uh, Botchgate in Carlisle. If any of your listeners are from the North of England, they'll know exactly what it, it used to get nicknamed Butchergate because there was so many fights there at night when people would get drunk. <laughs> um, but we lived, I lived in, it was the Red Lion Hotel and it had been turned into these little tiny bedsits. And you basically, there were just hotel rooms that became like, you know, one bedroom places. And you had a meter and in the winters they were brutally cold. So you basically, you know, you fed the meter to keep warm. Mm. And I remember, um, I remember, um, uh, going downstairs, uh, underneath there was all these stores, and under this store was this music store called Northern Sounds. And there was a guy in there called Nick Rimmer who was managing it. And um, and I would go in there every day and you know pick up a guitar and 
play it a little bit and then put it back on the wall. And after a while, that sort of every day turned into me hanging out there most of the day. Um, and I would sort of hang out and play some guitar. And eventually he started talking to me. And before you know it, we were jamming. And he was an insanely, and still is, Nick is an insanely talented musician. He was, but he was the older guy. I was 16, 17. He was 19. So, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. And he could, uh, he was a jazz sort of uh, funky kind of guy. And he, um, he, I remember he put, he would put up like sheet music for Al Giro and just sight read it and sight sing it. You know, I mean, he was insanely talented. I often tell this story, um, but I think it's, the reason why I tell this story that we're talking about now is because I think the internet allows us such an inc- such an incredible time that it allows us to communicate with people we could never communicate with. Gets us in front of um, gets us in front of so many different artists. Um, um, not even so much that. Not even it just if you're an amazing musician now, you can get yourself out there and people can hear you. Here, here I was. There was this guy who was 19 years old and he sightseeing. Um, he was an incredible player. Um, but I remember he and I going, yeah, you know, you're really good, but there's probably some, you know, if you go into Los Angeles, there'd be a, there's a thousand guys like you that are all much better than you. Well, I've lived in Los Angeles now for 22 years, and I've never met a, good, a better keyboard player than him. <laughs> yeah, right. There you go. But we're 19 years old. We're living in the north of England. There's no way to... You, the furthest thing from your mind to jump on a plane and fly to America and go and introduce yourself. And the people that did do it in those days are my hats off to them. But the reality is just people didn't do that. They just believed, you know, there was no internet. You had no way of measuring your abilities or checking out what you could do. There was no way to show off your skills on YouTube. It was just, um, you know, it was just like, there you are. You're this incredible keyboard player in a, in a town in the north of England. Okay, that's it. That was sort of, that was your lot. And, um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the, the guy's a phenomenal player. I believe he plays at his church and, um, and has a full-time job. You know, he yeah. never, he never, he plays in bands and he makes money in playing clubs and stuff like that, which is what I, what he and I ended up doing. And that was like, you ask about success. Well, that was, that was my first success. I got, I got out and started playing in, in clubs and pubs, working men's clubs in the North of England and pubs and, and doing covers. And that to me was like a success because I was getting paid money. Also at the time for anybody who's in England in the 80s or remember what I'm talking about. In the 80s, Margaret Thatcher, as unpopular as she was uh, uh, with many people, she came up with this idea um, But basically instead of being on the dole and being unemployed, if you started your own business, they give you, um, I think it was like 40 pounds every two weeks or 40 pounds. Basically, they give you the same, if not a little bit more extra money. Um, and you would go in every few weeks and they would show you how to do your books, how to do, you know, to do your accounts for taxes and, and give you basic, you know, simplistic by today's standards, sort of marketing ideas, etc. But I did that. And so I was this guitar player who was playing in bands, getting paid. And instead of like signing on and becoming unemployed, I got this like little endowment thing and I can't remember what it was called and it worked for me. I've never been unemployed. Mm, yeah. you know, I, 
And, you know, regardless of your feelings on, uh, um, on, on Margaret Thatcher or whatever, it worked for me and it worked for a few other people because it was like, it took away a stigma that we may have had about being unemployed. And now we're like being, I'm self-employed. And I've been self-employed my whole life since then. And um, I want to talk to you more about that in a little bit. But you mentioned about playing cover bands. And one of the things I've always found interesting about England is there are fewer cover bands and the culture is different than the United States, where the United States, it seems like everybody grows up and they play in cover bands. And a lot of people never break out of that and they play in, in cover bands for the rest of their lives. But I've found in the UK that if that does happen, it's very transitory and immediately musicians go to playing their own material and the audiences are more open to hearing that, or at least it seems to me that way, which is one of the reasons why I always felt that the UK was a lot more creative than the US. Is there anything to that? Um, yes, yes and no, definitely. Um, I think that um, the north of England was a totally different culture to the south. Where I grew up, I... There, there was there was bands that did covers and wrote their own songs, um, but there wasn't a big scene in the south of England where I was at least at the time, where you could go out and play clubs and pubs. Now you did occasionally see a band playing or hear of one or something like that, but I went into the north of England. It was the cold. Was you know everybody there was bands playing all of the time, um, and you go to pubs, you go to clubs, you go to working men's clubs, you, whatever. There was always a band playing, and so definitely in the north. So it could be, you could definitely point towards, um, you know, that as being um, a big difference, you know. Then as far as, as far as the originality thing, well, I, I, the, the thing I've experienced, um, I think that there is a lot of originality in both countries, um, from living in both countries, and I think it's equal if not greater in both countries. There's no real, I've met just as many talented musicians here as I have in England and vice versa. I just think that the, the old business model in America killed creativity. Um, it just, you, I had experiences of both things. When I was in England, I had a band, I had several bands, um, and uh, we had a couple of different record deals. And the last band I had a record with was a band that I, you know, I'd written, I'd produced, I'd played in, all this kind of stuff. And I took it to a label, and they put it out. And we had a top 40 hit. And... Um, you know, I think uh, the label owner tried to remix it, gave it to somebody to see if he could improve upon the mix. Um, then we came back and sat down in the office, played it back, and he played my version and the uh, and the remix version and went, yeah, you know what, Warren, yours is better, and just put it out. And then um, when, when I came to America, oh, oh, it was not like that at all. There was no, like, I would find bands, I would develop them, I'd co-write with them, I'd write their guitar parts, I would, whatever, you know, do everything you possibly could to make the music great. I, and I could spend up to a year and a half working with three or four different bands. I'd take them to labels, and immediately they'd get signed, I'd be dumped. One of the five or six producers that was producing every single record in America would, would record the album. Um, some points take especially the beginning of uh, late 90s, early 2000s, take my Pro Tools files, you know, record onto them, use them, you, you, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Or just completely copy the production exactly the same way. You know, this is something that may have taken a year or two of developing. And, 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 and of course, it was just this, all of, the, 
all of the energy, all of the creativity, all the originality was sapped out of it. And, you know, anybody that listens to sort of mid-late 90s through sort of mid-2000s music will know exactly what I'm talking about. It was just this, you know, you'd buy like these rock, especially rock music. Oh, you'd put on a rock album, it'd be 10 songs that sounded exactly the same. Exactly the same. And these, it was, it was convey about production. You know, they, some guys had three or four Pro Tools rigs going. And so the band would come in and they'd play down the drum part and they'd be chip, chop, 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 sample, 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 you know. And, and then that would go off to the, to the next guy. The bass player would play down and be chop, 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 chop. And then the guitar would be like chop, chop. <laughs> and then it would just come out the other end and there was just this. And then the same guys, two or three guys, and we know who they are, would be mixing the records. And we'd have the same drum samples in every song. There was just this period of just like killing creativity. So my perception was really that. I came from a country where they were looking for originality and there was new names popping up all the time to come into here and it was the exact opposite. It was like, it was like an A&R guys were just using the same five or six names. I mean, you can look at the rock albums of that period and we all know the names. They were all the same producers, the same engineers and the same mixers on every single album. And, but that was, you know, when we think about all of the records we love, they weren't made that way. They weren't made that way at all. They were made by bands by Pink Floyd or, you know, whatever, going into a studio for, for weeks, if not months, and crafting something, and every song having its own life and its own originality, you know. And, and then we, here we were, mid-late 90s, and everything is just, you know, conveyor belt production. Well, you mentioned about having the situation where you develop a number of acts, and then you'd take yep. them into the label, they'd get signed and then you get dumped from the project. When did that change for you? That changed when, because um, I was producing stuff um, right from the get-go, and, but it was impossible for me to produce anything that would become successful because every time I got something that was good, that was an artist that may become a household name, my, I was completely you know, dropped off it, so I had no association. So I got a real manager at that time, and the first real, the first real manager I actually got was Gary Gunton for a short period. Um, who was great? It was also Mark Enders, but we didn't. We were he, he didn't stay managing for very long. He actually retired. But the first guy, Sandy Robertson, who's very well known out here, was the first guy that was just like Warren. You've got to get some credit. It's all very well that you're talented and you know how to do all this stuff, but you need to have your name on albums. So he actually put me together with a few different people. One of those being um, Dave Sardi. So I did a Thrills album with Dave Sardi and a Hot Hot Heat album, and. You know, even though I could produce and I could, I could play the parts and write the parts and write the songs and all this kind of stuff, even though I had all that stuff, it didn't mean anything. I had to, you know, I had to, to humble myself and, and start back from the beginning and start, you know, engineering and editing and all the different jobs that were around. So it was a good experience for me, you know. It, it, it was good. But, you know, but it was also interesting. Sadi obviously is very talented and has a lot, really long resume. But then I would work with other producers that were just in a position where they could produce. You know, they were, you understand what I mean? You know, I do. They, they, they just had that ability to be able to say, I'm the producer. And so I would, I would pretty much produce the album, you know. And, but then, then I also look at it from a perspective of like, uh, that's part of being of service. And it's also how you get work. If, I mean, if somebody hires me, whether to produce, engineer or mix, they're going to get a guy doesn't matter what they hire me as, that can, 
you know, play all the instruments, that can co-write the songs, that can engineer it, that can produce it and that can mix it. No matter what role they hire me for, they know I'm very qualified in every way, shape or form. And, you know, and, and yes, part of my job probably was to make other people that weren't that, you know, make other people look good. But um, that's why they hired me. You know what I mean? It's like it's kind of a catch-22. I, 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 I always look at life from a sort of Malcolm Gladwell perspective, and I think this is really important that people do this, is like you can be the guy or girl sitting in your bedroom resentful that you're really, really talented and other people less talented than you are making money, but you're going to stay sitting in your bedroom. Or you can look at it like Gladwell does, you know, when you read his books, he's like, he tells you, yes, Steve Jobs, you know, all of, the, all of those guys, they were born in this area, they went to this school, they had this piece of information, blah, 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 blah. Yes, they were all luckier than anything else, more, as, if not more luckier than talented. However, you know, you've got to create those environments. You know, when yeah. he talked about, you know, the, it's, it's all very well being resentful and going, well, you know, if I'd been born in 1970, blah, 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 and I had gone to that school, then I would be owning Microsoft. It's like, uh, no, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. just like, not very well thinking that way. You've just got to create your own luck, you know? Yeah. Well, okay, so you can do so many of these things that are so important. Usually you find people that are good at maybe one or two, and, and you have many tools in your toolbox. When you look at yourself, what do you consider yourself? Do you consider yourself a producer first or a musician first, or how do you look at yourself? Well, I think uh, I definitely see myself as a producer first these days, but I started off and still in the back of my mind know that I'm a guitar player. I mean, the reason why I wanted to do this is because you know, I, I was a guitar player, but I, I definitely just see myself as a producer now. I can't, when I put on a piece of music, I don't just listen to the guitar playing. I've moved, it's been a, 20 years since I've just been that kid that listens to it and goes, oh yeah, he should have done this, or I don't listen to music like that anymore. I definitely listen to things as a whole. You know, I, I did a, I did consult and A&R work for a couple of different labels, so I've, I've also sort of honed myself to listening to a lot of music from a in our perspective so you know and I, I have a publishing company and I have a record label where I put out you know artists that I work with so it's the reality is is that these days I see myself as a, you know definitely as a producer because I feel like a, the proper producer is like a guy like George Martin of course and, and George Martin was the staff producer and the head of A&R for Parlophone. He was all in one. I feel like those those days, my favorite times, not just the Beatles, because that's an easy thing to say. Oh, yeah, I like the Beatles. I mean, everybody likes the Beatles and the Beatles production. But I think that that time period where A&R guys and producers were the same thing, but not A&R guys that wanted to be producers. I'm talking about a guy like George Martin, as you know, who's a classically trained piano player. Yeah, sure. And could write, and could write string arrangements. I'm not talking about a guy that gets a gets a job as an A&R guy for a label because his uncle owns the company or something, and then says, oh, I want to produce the next album. You know, we had a lot of that for a long period. I like the actual, like, genuinely talented people that can play instruments, write songs, you know. I think these days the job of a producer is that, and I think the technology has made it that. The fact that everything is so much easier and more available than ever, you need to hone your skills because... Every kid after a year or two knows can run away around, run their way around Pro Tools, and record music really quite well. Now it's 
Okay, what else do you bring to the party? So you know your DAW. Okay, great. You know your DAW. That should be a given. Now it's like, what else do you do? You know, can you, can you coax an incredible performance out of a singer? Can you read your singer? Do you know when the singer is happy, sad? You know, do you know when they're in it or out of it? Do you know how to break them out of a funk? Do you know how to get them into a zone where they're either happier or whatever it is? You know, the, these are skills that you need. These are proper people skills. Um, of course, if you're doing EDM and it's just a case of everything is going to be like this or, or an emo <laughs> track where it's, where it's two specific emotions. I mean, there's, you know, I've, I've been involved in some of those records and, and I get it. You know, there's, it's more about moving from A to B. I have nothing against EDM. I think some of the best music of the 90s was like, you know, but it was a, the, more of the sort of massive attacks and all that kind of stuff. But the point is, is like, you need a larger skill set. Well, but yes, definitely. Learn your DAW, know what you're doing. But if you're going to break your, you're going to become better than other guys and girls and get noticed, then definitely, um, definitely learn more than just your DAW. Well, this is a, a good point to segue into this then and talk about Produce Like a Pro. There's so much else I want to talk to you about, about your past and the people you work with and how you did it and what your approach is. But maybe we can save that for another time. But let's go to produce like a pro for a second. How did that come about? It's a weird one. It's like, I think it's sort of all morphed in what I've done. But originally, I wanted to... Originally, the biggest thing for me is like, you know, my dad was a painter and an artist like we talked about. But I don't want to create any illusions that we were this massively successful family. We lived in a... I found the house online the other day when I did a Google Maps search. It was a 600-square-foot semi-detached bungalow, and there was five of us. It was two bedrooms. So my brother's 10 years younger than me, so me and my six-year-old brother, when I was 16, shared one tiny bedroom. My parents had another bedroom, and then my sister had a closet, which they managed to put, like, this small bed in. And so that, that was the, how we lived. And my dad was... was we, didn't, we didn't feel like we were poor because my... You know, we, we, were a, we were a good family, you know. And, and so it wasn't necessarily... But I was definitely aware that we didn't have a lot of money and I didn't get toys and all the stuff that I wanted like every other kid seemed to do. But I didn't... It, it didn't stop us being a, a well-educated, you know, worldly family that understood, you know, lots of great things. So, so the reality is for me is I looked around... And the reason why I started Pew Produce Like a Pro is I looked around and I saw all the different kinds of channels and all the different kinds of learning mediums and everything that everybody was doing. And on one side, there was a sort of seemed to be like a, a little bit of an elitism with some YouTube stuff where it was all like lots of backslapping and you're amazing, I'm amazing, and wow, you know. And then there was a lot of people that were professional marketers that, that were selling courses and stuff like that. But they didn't actually do music. I mean, there's still a proliferation of that, as you know, on YouTube. It's still mainly marketing people selling products from YouTube, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. And they maybe have an interest in something. Um, and so I thought to myself, well, I got, well, there's these two extremes. There's kind of like marketing people, you know, doing stuff. And then there's people that are maybe not being able to talk to the common man or, or whatever that means, be able to talk to a lot of people at the other extreme and make, and I just thought, I want to connect the two worlds. I want to sort of have a, a channel that uh, brings everybody in that isn't super elitist, but isn't also just primarily, you know, 
contrived. It's um, and it's tough, you know, because some of the more contrived videos, of course, get more views. You know, and, and I'm always I'm always looking at it, going, oh, I wish we hard edited that and had a graphic coming in, and you know, but do you you know what I mean? It's like I, I, I yeah. I'm always like walking that sort of line between new YouTube channels that are popping up all the time, where you can. You know, I even see guys using the title of um, one of my more successful videos for their videos. You know, people are, they're smart. So that, you know, we're in America, it's all about marketing and stuff like that. And I do appreciate marketing, and, and I do, but I wanted to start off with a purity of thought, a purity of idea, which is like, look at me, here's a guy that didn't go through a studio system, wasn't an assistant engineer on 50 albums, who then became an engineer, began became producer. I don't have any friends in the industry that got me big, powerful gigs. There's no nepotism going on. I'm not related to anybody. It, this is this is how you do. I sit here. I'm in my my house at the moment, and my studio behind my house has an SSL console, some Pultex, a large mic collection, and everything. And everything in this room, I've had to work for and buy and pay for. And none of it was gifted. I didn't have an inheritance. And, you know, I grew up poor. And I'm not trying to, like, wear it like a badge of honor. It just, I, it was like me going, I know that you can do this. And here we are in this world with YouTube and Facebook and all the social media aspects. And I can talk to people and I can go, you know what? Don't be disillusioned. Don't be disillusioned when you go to forums and you're being trashed because you don't know what you're talking about. You know what? I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not an expert. There's lots of experts out there, but usually the experts aren't actually making money doing music. They're making money being an expert. <laughs> and so I just wanted to be like, you know what I mean? I just wanted to be like, here I am. I'm making records. This is what I do. You know, Today I've got to finish mixing Ace Frehley's album. I've got another track to do and a couple of recalls and probably more, but... But my point is, is like, and then I'm finishing a Christina Holmes record. I'm about to start a band called The Matthews, which I produced, and then I produced and got signed to a record deal, and they're flying over to make an album. This is what I do every day. I make records, and I'm letting people show what I do. Okay, that being said, what I've found is on your courses, it, there's a couple of very interesting things to me. You mentioned that you don't feel like you're the expert. I disagree. I think you are, but... That being said, you you bring other people in with you on the courses, so it's not just you saying, "Okay, this is the way I do it." Yeah. It's you and other people, which is is an yeah. interesting approach, and actually, it's a very healthy approach because let's face it, yeah. there are more than one way to do these things. Exactly. Well, exactly. Yeah. That you know, when people ask me how to do something, I will definitely tell them how I do it, and then they'll come back and say, "But I, you shouldn't do it like this. You should do it like that." And I'm like, "Okay, yeah, if that works for you. That's great." It's like, um, uh, it, it, you know, it's like this whole, we were talking about it um, a couple of weeks ago, this whole um, thing that the mastering engineers are facing now where people are, are sending them stuff which they're not using high-passing anymore because there's, there's videos out there telling them that you shouldn't high-pass. One guy has a successful video, uh, video said, what was his quote? If you can't hear it in the speakers, then you don't need to high-pass it. Well, it's like, if you can't hear it in your small speakers, great, but as soon as you play it through a PA or in a mastering suite, you're going to hear this yeah, low yeah, rumble, right, right. and you're going to lose the definition. And mastering engineers, Warren Sokol, Gavin Lurson, Ruben Cohen, you know, the list, Adam Ayan, they're all saying that they can't pull out a kick drum or a bass guitar or the low end on it because kids are being told that they shouldn't high-pass. It's just like... It, it, 
this is this is the problem we face, and it's like I I don't want to be an expert, and because I I have changed my opinions, I'm sure you have too, on many many things over the years. Um, quite often I've thought that I know best about something, and I'm totally wrong. The best example I can think of for me is my favourite um, vocal sound ever. Well, my favourite vocal sound is Hey Jude. I mean, no no two ways about it. That when that comes in, it's I feel warm and fuzzy, and um, Two stories about vocals. So, so I was convinced that it was a U47 because everybody told me it was a U47. In fact, it was probably a U48 because it was modded to be a figure of eight. Yeah. So I actually own a U47 and a U48, and of course I do vocals on them. Um, anyway, so I was talking to somebody about the Beatles the other day. Um, I believe it was actually a q and I was doing, and I was talking about the uh, Hey Jude classic Hey Jude vocal sound and how... You know, I've always wanted to get that sound and how difficult it was to get. And the guy's like, well, you do have a U67, don't you? I was like, oh, I used to. I sold it. It wasn't a very good one. He's like, well, you're not going to have much luck trying to get a Jude vocal sound unless you have a U67. I'm like, you're kidding me. He goes, nope, it was done on a U67. So I spent my whole life convinced that I knew best and that a U47 or a U48 was the sound of Hey Jude and that was the best vocal sound ever, only to find out that it's actually a U67. (laughs) So... There's number one, definitely not an expert. And then the second thing is, for me, the best modern vocal is definitely Mark Endert's mix of Hey Soul Sister. That vocal is unfreaking believable. Yeah, yeah. And I've sat in a room with five or six big, big mixers, and they all use that as a reference. They all deny it. <laughs> but, you know, I'm not going to call them all out. But all of them had it. All of them had that as one of their reference mixes. Because we all know it's an amazing vocal. And the way that song is mixed, the way it grows organically, it's just incredible. And so I've always, always said I don't like multiband compressors on vocals. They always soften it up for me. Never managed to make them work. So there I am interviewing Mark Ender, and I said to him, oh, but I have to tell you, and I told him, oh, every guy I sit with uses that song. We all love it. It's the best vocal sound ever. It's so good. What did you do? He goes, oh, well, I used a multiband compressor. <laughs> <laughs> So there you go. Yeah. You know, what do I know? You know what I mean? It's like I've, I've, I convinced myself that I knew best about something, and I'm totally wrong. And it's like, so I think with the, with the expert stuff, I think that I'm, I want to be really careful not to, to, to give disinformation away. And also I find that I make mistakes in my videos. I, don't, I bypass something or I don't bypass it or I turn something up that I should have turned down or whatever or hit the wrong frequency. And uh, it happens all the time. And... People will point it out, and I'll be like, ah, you're, dang it, you're right, I did, I forgot to do that. Well, it just proves that I'm not an expert. Well, it happens to me, too, <laughs> for what it's worth. Yeah. I've had it happen several times. I go, oh, geez, how did I miss that? But it's, to me, most important thing about Produce Like a Pro is that it's a community, and that everybody helps each other, and we keep it positive, and it's not about one-upping. And I find that the guys that have those kind of disinformation, misinformation videos, the expert guys who sort of lecture everybody on, on, on you know, what waveforms look like, that's another great one in these videos. It's like, you see over here that the face, you see this and you see that. It's just like, are you kidding me? What does it sound like? Yeah. Ah, but, yeah. You know, another another popular one is like uh, people don't like to now EQ two sources and then bust them together. I'm like, you're kidding me. I, I, they're like, oh, you changed the way the phase looks. Literally, <laughs> phase looks. 
And it's like I, one of one of the the best rock mixers I know. And you, you were talking about collaborating with people is Bob Marlette. He's an amazing producer, engineer, and mixer, and he's made like Sabbath albums, Airborne, Pop Evil, like modern rock, and he's always got something in the charts that he's done in modern rock. He's like a huge modern rock mixer, and he'll take the three different mic sources on a kick drum and EQ them completely differently and then sum them to one, and it gives you the best kick drum sound you've ever heard. However, you watch one of these guys' videos, and they'll be like, you know, you cannot EQ things separately. It's like, and then bust them because the phase will look out. You know, it's like, what is your point? I mean, that's how we all EQ bass guitars how every great guy I know EQs bass guitar. You take two or three different elements and you EQ them differently, then bust them together, and you don't get any phase cancellation in the low end because there isn't two to three. And this huge misconception. They don't understand that if you don't use high passing, you get three or four elements that are all in the low end, all very slightly phase shifted because nothing hears something at the same time. You actually get more mud, less definition, and more phase issues. So it's like completely back-to-front teaching. But unfortunately, that's, that's sort of the world we live in where, 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 where these sort of, what do we call them, self, um, self-appointed experts. So, yeah, so those are one of the reasons. It's like I just want to help people and try and cut through that sort of, um, uh, you know, telling you off kind of mentality because music should be all-encompassing. It should be all of us coming together. It's, music is joyful, you know, it's, you know, I know what you mean. I recently lost my father, and um, and he was a huge deal for me with music. Huge, huge, as, as we were talking about earlier. And, like, I, I can play Nimrod by Elgar. And even before my father died, uh, I could listen to Nimrod and burst into tears. I have not listened to that piece of music without crying. I mean, it is like, it, to me, that is what music is about. It's not about waveforms. And, you know, we need to teach technical, but we need to teach technical to get from A to B because, you know, that should be something that we should all learn technically how to do things. But I think that the proliferation of a lot of the tutorial videos is because it's actually easy to teach technical things. You just, if I watch three videos on how to mix an electric guitar, I can make my own how to mix an electric guitar video. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, right, right, exactly. It, but music is more than that. It's so much more than that. It, it, it's not just, it, it, you know, it, it, it can be the most beautiful thing in the world. It can make you laugh. It can make you cry. It can, it, it, it can be everything. It can be joyful. It can be, it can pull you out of a funk. It can, it can put you into something if you want to feel something, you know? Uh, it's, that's what music is. And, and that's why I got into music. I didn't get into it to sort of like market it. You know, I got into it because I love it. And I always want to make sure that I'm pushing that forward and that, that, that we bring people together in this beautiful community we have. Because there's so many wonderful people in this in doing what we do. Well, there's so much more that we can talk about here. And hopefully we'll get another chance at some point because I didn't even touch the surface of what I wanted to speak with you about. That being said... Let me go to my last question. This is something I ask everybody. You specifically will be able to answer this only because of the story that you told in the beginning. What was the best piece of business advice that you either learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? The most, I, I've, see, I've learned them at different periods. It's like I, 
I don't know if I learned the most important things until just a few years ago. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, there was an older guy called Tony, who was quite significantly older, who, who said to me, um, say yes and then figure out how you're going to do it afterwards. <laughs> um, and I, that, was one of the, that was the difference between me living in England, you know, wallowing in my own self-pity, maybe teaching guitar for a living, or living in Los Angeles, you know, in the hills of a studio and, and making records with, with people I admire. Because it was a huge differentiator, because if I take stock of myself, if you, if you sit me down and ask you, Warren, what do you think of yourself? I'll basically be like, oh, I'm just some kid who plays a big bit of guitar and I like making music. That's what I really think of myself, even though I've had thousands and thousands of hours of experience making records with the Fray or Aerosmith or bloody blah, you know, James Blunt, you name it. I've worked with all these great people. I still just think I'm just this kid. So if I relied on that, on, on just a sort of outsider trying to break in, if I just wanted to be that guy, I would never be anywhere. I'd never be successful. I'd never have this career that I have. So when Tony said that to me and he said, say yes and figure out how you're going to do it afterwards, what he's basically saying is just go for it. Just go for it. If Bobby calls you and says, Warren, I want to do a podcast, say yes. You know what I mean? Don't go, oh, well, I don't know if I've got anything to say. You know, because that's what I really want to say to you. You know, I'm kind of, I don't really, you know, there's the little scared kid inside all of us, you know? Yeah. And so that was a big piece of advice. Um, and that was really early on. That was like 16 years old, you know? And, and I, I, lots of other famous people have said that. And he wasn't famous. He was just a, a smart, hardworking guy. And then the other thing is less, uh, and, and it could be paraphrased with different things. Quincy Jones, when asked about uh, Stevie Wonder, said, what do they, what's so remarkable about Stevie Wonder? He said, uh, Stevie always leaves enough room in the, in the room for God. <laughs> and what that, what that means is that Stevie Wonder has no ego. You know, he just, he just lets... And I think that um, I, I think that I've heard that, and I take stock of it. But I also think that um, working with guys like Jack Douglas taught me that more than anything else. Because you're in a room with Jack Douglas, and he's got he's producing an Aerosmith record, and he's got like obviously the Steven Tyler's, the Joe Perry's in the room, and Joe's actually quite uh, n- not big, loud, and outspoken. But of course, you know Stephen is. Um, and then you've got like um, Brad Whitford and Jerry Kramer and of course um, Tom Hamilton, and they're they're not as loud as outspoken, obviously, as Stephen. And but you're in a room with five guys who are all, obviously all incredibly talented. And Jack Douglas makes every single person in that room feel like they have a voice, they're being listened to, and that their opinion matters and their creativity is just as important as the next guy. So I don't, that's sort of the same thing as the Stevie Wonder quote. And that's just something that I learned that, you know, you, your opinion as the producer is actually not the most important thing. And that, I I learned that from actually as well from working with producers the other way around, that just kind of have one way of doing things. They only know how to produce a record a certain way. And I think like we were talking about with the 90s albums, particularly like the mid-late 90s albums, they had a system of making a record, and it may work for certain bands, especially some of the emo bands of the time, you know, had that 
super auto-tune car, never need you kind of thing. And maybe it was a genre that worked, but anything that was outside of that didn't fit in that particular thing. And so I think as a producer, you have to have a massive skill set, but your biggest skill is being able to communicate and get performances from people. Because I have a thousand ideas, but if I'm in a room with five people that each have a thousand ideas, they've got five times more ideas than me. Yeah. And I need to be listening to their ideas. And it's hard to come up with new ideas when they're my ideas over and over again. But I've got this new guitar player who I've never worked with before. And I suggest something to him and he takes it on board and then goes off on some tangent with it and creates something really a remarkable melody line that I never would have come up with. I mean, that's far more exciting than me just imposing my idea on him. And uh, I think, don't get me wrong, I've done many al albums or recordings and stuff like that where I've had to fill in those gaps tremendously. That's part of a skill set. I've had to go and pick up a guitar and play the part. It happens all the time. But there's plenty of other times where I'm just coaxing an incredible performance out of people. And just to sort of top it off, I know you and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I also think it's important for a producer, engineer, guy, girl. It's also important for us to not shortchange our artists. Our artists come in here to grow and learn, and we should be providing that for them. And I, when I read hundreds of comments every day about people like, oh, you know, I just have to do this, or I do that, or I time it, or I tune it, or I grid it, or I do whatever, I'm like, sure. There's many instances where you have to fix things. But if you have to spend an extra 20 minutes getting a better performance out of the singer or a better, a be, you know, whatever it might be, um, that is a far more valuable um, experience because they'll walk away having learned something and having improved as a musician, having improved as a singer. And I think that's a big part of what we do. And that's something, again, I learned from Jack. You know, and I learned with my own experiences. But I saw with Jack, you know, he'd just work it until it was great. Yeah. It was never good enough. Yeah. It was never good enough. But also he has the talent and the acquired knowledge to know when it is good. Another thing, I worked with a lot of producers as an engineer that didn't actually know when it was good. Go past the magic, yeah. which everybody complains about. Oh, yeah, take number three yeah. was the one. Why are we doing 23? Because they didn't know it was the one. Yeah. Simple as that, you know? Oh, and because they think that if the artist leaves exhausted, they're going to think that they worked them hard. If a singer sings a song down twice in the second take or half the first take and half the second take are the greatest thing you've ever heard, then do a third take to see if they get any better. And maybe two words come out of the third. Go to the fourth. You only need to do two more lines of the bridge. Focus on the bridge. Do the two lines on the bridge. Now you've got it. You've done. Yeah. I work with... Um, um, David Foster recently and Diane Warren. So Diane Warren written a song, David Foster was producing it. And David Foster said to me, I have never done more than 10 takes with any singer in my life. Wow, that's good to know. And last time I checked, David Foster sold more records than anybody. No kidding. <laughs> he's done like all the Celine Dion's and all the Barbara Streisand's and stuff we forget about, which actually sells millions and millions of records. Now, the flip side of that is the fact that he's working with supremely talented vocalists. So, yes, you could say that they don't have to do more than 10 takes, and if they do 10, that's more than you'd expect almost. But, again, it's an indication that sometimes more is well, not there, better. Well, the singer we, we were working with definitely wasn't Barbara Streisand or Celine Dion, and he still said it, because that was kind of why it came up in conversation. Because it, it was kind of like he said, I haven't done 
more than 10, so- 10 takes with anyone. Like his whole point was like, doesn't matter if it's, it doesn't matter if it's a singer just starting off or somebody who, or Barbra Streisand. There's no reason to do that. Because his, his point is like, and I get it as well from, from my perception of working with singers, is if, hey guys, I'm doing a podcast. So you're going into things. So hold on a second. So his perception is, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, his perception is no matter what the, the who the singer is, um, you know, um, if you don't get it by the 10th take, you're probably not going to get it. Well, it also means you're not yeah. focusing. Yeah. I mean, if I, if, if you're singing the verse 10 times and you haven't got the pitch, you should be stopping by take three and walking out to the piano or picking up the guitar and working on the melody with the singer, making sure you don't just keep going and going and going. You need to, you need to have that skill set where you're going, well, okay, he or she, you know, didn't get the melody. They don't obviously aren't hearing the melody. So I'll sit down at the piano, I'll sit down on the guitar and go through the melody. I've even done plenty of times where I've played the melody into the mix and they've sung along with the melody. You know, you get into action, you get into fixing, you get into solution. You don't just work them for 50 takes because, you know, that's your job. As a, as a producer, if you're not hearing the melody, I go in and I play the melody and work with, it, with you on it. And, and as well, like I said, I might play the melody into the song and then they're singing along with it. Even the phrasing, if it's like, I might play that in so they're not dragging the note out, so they get the right staccato. I mean, it's my job. My job is to teach them to get a great performance, not just to sort of like sing it down three times and then edit it the way I want it to be. It's like, get in there, work with you, because it shows, it shows that you have a technical skill that you can edit something, but it doesn't show that you have a production skill. Uh, you can't work with it on Yeah, big difference there. To find out more about Warren, you can go to warrenhuart.com. That's Warren, W-A-A-R-E-N-H-U-A-R-T, all one word, warrenhuart.com. You can also find out about his Produce Like a Pro community at Produce Like a Pro, all one word, producelikeapro.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. (laughs) 